You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19 once again. Revelation chapter 19. I want to read for us the whole chapter in context this morning. We'll be covering the last portion of chapter 19 since we've already covered the first half, but I want to read it all for us in context this morning. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his saints, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We talked last week about Um, the blessedness that comes by being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We said those who fear and worship God alone through their daily acts are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we connected the fact that it's those who have responded to the gospel, who are now God-fearers, who are now worshipers of God, who have renounced idols in their life, um, that are now seeking to live their life in ways that are submitted to God. They're performing good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's these type of people who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We talked about remembering all the reasons that we have to worship and fear God, that 
um, his actions produce unity in heaven's expressions of praise, and that we look forward to a day where we're gathered with other believers who are all saying the same things about God, that there are no theological differences, there are no disagreements about who God is and how he acts and functions, that everybody will be in agreement about who God is. We talked about his salvation bringing judgment and vengeance upon our enemies, certainly, certainly something we can rejoice in, that his judgments cannot be reversed and they last forever. Um, you know, so oftentimes we see in movies evil that can never be defeated, that can never be quenched, that it's always coming back. So there's a sequel and then, then it becomes a trilogy. And, and that's not true in God's judgments. When God defeats evil, he defeats it once and for all. We also talked about his call to worship him uh, being extended to everyone, both small and great, that there is no uh, discrimination in God when he talks about salvation, that all are invited to come and to worship him despite who they are and despite what uh, positions they hold here on earth. Um, we talked about his expectation to be worshiped being based on his uniqueness and his holiness. And because of that, we talked about our responsibility to, to produce good and that comes from God's power working in us that God enables us to produce good but that we're responsible for pursuing good through his power. And so I left you with the application question last week. What are some intentional ways that you are seeking to do good through your life right now? So a lot of that hinging on our blessedness to uh, participate and be invited to that marriage supper of the Lamb. We come today now to the back end of chapter 19, and the question that we're asked is not are we invited to the supper, but will we become supper? At the end of this chapter, there's a great calling to the birds of the air to come and feast upon God's enemies who will be defeated, and their bodies are kind of strewn out, and, and the call is for the birds to come and eat of the spoil of that battle. And so the question today is, will we become supper or will we be invited to supper? Our summary sentence for today, uh, when Jesus returns, he will do so in glory and power with his followers to execute justice on all those who have rejected and opposed him. When Jesus returns, he will do so in glory and power with his followers to execute justice on all those who have rejected and opposed him. For our kids, Jesus will bring an end to all evil when he comes. He's coming in all of his glory and all of his power to execute justice on those who've rejected and opposed him. We've talked before about the difference in Jesus's first coming and in his second coming. In his first coming, he, he comes as a servant. He comes in humility. Um, he comes emptying himself uh, and, and becoming a, a human being to then uh, live out a life of obedience and, and to ultimately go to the death on the cross, right? We see that in Philippians chapter two. Jesus' second coming, he comes in all of his glory. He's arrayed in that excellence and, and he comes uh, to bring justice, to, to bring punishment upon sin, to, to bring justice on those who have rejected him and those who have opposed him. He brings evil to an end when he comes. Some introductory notes uh, to give you. This passage obviously deals with the second coming of Jesus. Um, and I think that we're probably going to, over the next couple of weeks, as we get into Revelation chapter 20 as well, kind of step back and do kind of an overview of the, the, uh, the second coming of Jesus, an overview of the millennial reign and the different views there before we actually get into Revelation 20, which is the, the chapter that really um, is the, the presentation of the millennial reign uh, of Christ and, and how we understand that chapter is based on how we understand some other passages in Scripture. And so we'll probably look at the second coming of Jesus, the millennial reign, and then get into Revelation chapter 20 
uh, and look at what that text actually has to say after we kind of filter through some of the other views. And so um, we'll do that in the next couple of weeks. But this passage, obviously talking about the second coming of Jesus, and when we say the second coming of Jesus, we are talking about the historical, visible, and bodily return of God's Son to this earth. It's the historical, visible, and bodily return of God's Son to this earth. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus leaves and departs this earth after that first coming, you remember that his disciples are standing there waiting and, and kind of watching and what happens next. And the angel comes and says, look, he's going to come back the same way that he left, right? But he's given you instructions, go do those instructions, but be anticipating the fact that he's coming back just as he left. And he left in an, in an historical way, right? He left on a day. He, he visibly departed. He did so in such a way where he left in his physical body, his resurrected body. And so we anticipate the day that he comes back. It'll come on a day, uh, an actual day, not something that's kind of spread out over um, a long period of time. Jesus will come on a specific day. He'll come where it is very visible. He will come in that resurrected body, and he will come just as he promised. In Revelation chapter 13, we were introduced to the two beasts in in addition to the dragon. The two beasts that were mentioned in Revelation 13 are the two beasts that are being judged here at the end of Revelation 19, that sea beast and the land beast, the false prophet. And so we see what was introduced in Revelation 13 being dealt with now in Revelation 19. These two great evils are destroyed I think what's encouraging in this passage, we're obviously talking about battle, we're talking about war, um, and oftentimes when we study and, and see things on, on the news, but even study previous wars and battles, we know that most wars leave a lot of unjust suffering and destruction in their wake, and that's not the case here. This is a battle, this is a war that takes place, and there is no unjust suffering, there is no unjust destruction here. This is all very true very right, very appropriate uh, based on how Jesus handles it. There's some key Old Testament passages that I think help us to understand the language being used here. I want to read those for you before we actually get into the text. The first one being in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." as the waters cover the sea. This passage talks about the way that Jesus comes and how he judges, right? That he doesn't simply do so by outward and visible perceptions. He does that through intimate knowledge of people's hearts. And by doing so, he comes 
and he judges with what the uh, prophet Isaiah tells us is with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he brings judgment. Very similar to the wordage that we see here in the book of Revelation. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see some other parallels with the way that, that God is talking about judgment here in Revelation 19. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 25. This is God talking to Israel and him uh, just really challenging them about their need to be obedient and what happens if they don't obey him. It says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated by, before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Warnings to Israel that if they don't obey God, they will be destroyed, and the birds will come and eat their bodies as a point of destruction. We see something similar in Ezekiel chapter 39. This is when God is judging Gog and Magog. Um, Names that pop up again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. Um, And so certainly this was probably on uh, John's mind as he writes about this. uh, This passage from Ezekiel chapter 39. And the, the surrounding chapters have to deal with all of this. But particularly we'll read chapter 39, verse 17. It says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, and of of all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Again, this is God's declaration of judgment, and he uses similar language to what we're seeing in Revelation. Again, just to point out to you that what we're talking about in Revelation is not drastically different than what the rest of the Bible has to say. God has always talked in terms of the destruction of his enemies being like this, um, being like this. And so it's very similar, very appropriate for him to talk about it this way in Revelation chapter 19. All right, so we go back to Revelation chapter 19 now. In verse 11, And our first point today is rejoice over Jesus coming in glory and power with his followers. We rejoice as Christians over Jesus coming in glory and power with his followers. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And then down in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. For our kids, as Christians, we rejoice over Jesus coming back. And we rejoice because of what's really wrapped up in these names or titles that are given to Jesus as this white rider. 
Um, we talked about this in our discussion groups. There's, there's really four different groupings of names or titles that are described here. First of all, there's, there's him being called faithful and true. Then we have um, this mysterious name that's not really told to us, but it's there. Then we have uh, the title or the name of the word of God being applied to Jesus. And then at the, the end of that section in verse 16, he's described as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So let's look at those individually. First of all, he's coming in faithfulness and truth. He's called the faithful one, the true one. This goes back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That ties in in a minute with what we're going to talk about with him being the word of God. But here in Revelation 3 and in Revelation 19, he's described as the faithful one, the true one. And I was just thinking about what those, those two words really mean, faithful and true. He's somebody that, that we can believe what he says, right? What he says we can believe and what he says he will do. And those are, those are two really important qualities in any type of leader, any type of person that you're putting your hope and trust in. You need to be able to believe the things that they say and believe that they are going to do the things that they say they're going to do, right? Like that's, that's what election season is really all about. It's, it's who do we believe is telling the truth, right? And all the other candidates try to pull out the lies and the, the deception that the other candidate is, is putting forth, right? Like, let's, let's find the, the secrecies. Let's find the lies and expose this candidate, that he's somebody that we can't believe what he says. He's somebody that won't follow through on the things that he says he'll do. Jesus is the faithful one, the true one. We can believe the things that he says. We can believe that he will do the things that he says he will do. We talked last week, I think I said that um, God, God doesn't have to do anything until he says that he's going to do it, right? Like he doesn't have to do anything, right? He, he's God, it's his universe. He can, he can manage it the way that he wants to. doesn't have to do one thing that we think he should do, but he, but he has to do what he says that he's going to do, right? Like we, we, he doesn't have to do anything until he says that he's going to do it. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 12 reiterates this truth. So it's not just me saying it. God says this. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. God says, I'm watching over my word. I'm making sure that what I've said is actually what I do. I perform according to the word that I've given. So, so God obligates himself to do certain things. He keeps his promises because he has said that he will do them, and he has to now. Because he's the faithful one, because he's the true one, he has to do what he says he's going to do. And then he watches over his word to make sure that he does it. It's comforting to us that his eyes allow him to see everything, to know everything, and to respond to everything in truth. We've seen this idea earlier in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, and in chapter 2, verse 18, the eyes of the Lord being described and, and what that means for us. In Revelation 1, 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
It's the same person we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 19. We saw him back in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus in his glory. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. Right? His eyes can see into every crevice. His eyes penetrate the darkness and can see all. He judges inwardly and outwardly, and he does it rightly. Man, the fact that he's the faithful one and the true one, that offers great comfort, great hope to us as believers today. We can believe what he says. We can believe that he will do what he says he will do. And we can trust that he sees all, knows all, and responds to all because those eyes are like flames of fire. Number two, he is coming in unlimited sovereignty. He is coming in unlimited sovereignty. The term sovereign simply talks about uh, one's control, one's ability to control and and, um, operate over things, right? And so when we talk about kings, we talk about their, their sovereignty over their kingdoms. And when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about one who comes in sovereignty, but he comes with unlimited sovereignty, meaning he controls all. We see this being highlighted in the description of Jesus here that on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Many diadems upon his head point to the absolute rule, the absolute authority that he has over all. Some of these evil characters we've seen, they have like seven diadems or ten diadems, and we talked about that, that, that picture of authority that they had. But here with Jesus, his diadems aren't even named, right? We're just told that he has many diadems, which means more than seven, more than ten, He has absolute authority, absolute control. He has an unknown name that only he knows. It's similar to what we see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. I'll read that for you real quick. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. right, so we've seen this concept before. Uh, we don't have a clear explanation as to what is this name and, and why is it only known by Jesus himself. Uh, but one theory, one idea is that uh, at this time when, we're, when you're talking about gods and, and, and rulers and, and people who demand worship, to know an individual's intimate name was to have control over that person in some ways, um, to be able to, to beckon them or call upon them by that intimate name. And so even in this capacity, it's, it's a reminder to us that there's a mystery to Jesus that we will never fully comprehend and know. While, while he's given us intimate access to enjoy him and to fellowship with him, there's still a mysteriousness to Jesus that's withheld from us. Right? We can't fully comprehend him. And so I think even the idea of there being a name out there that we don't know reminds us how sovereign he is, how in control he is, that we never gain control over him as his creation. Right? We've, given, we've been given plenty of names to know him by. This one's withheld from us, which I think reminds us of our finiteness as his creation. But he is coming in unlimited sovereignty. Um, The fact that his diadems point to that, his many diadems, his absolute authority, his absolute rule. Number three, he is coming as an outworking of God's word. He's coming as an outworking of God's word. He is referenced by the name, the word of God. He is the same one who has been with his father since the beginning. 
for most of you, reading that probably reminds you of what is said in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the, the direct revelation of, of who God is. Right? He is the word of God. He was with the Father. He is equal to the Father. He is the outworking of God's plans here on this earth. And he brings judgment based upon this word, right? He brings judgment through the word. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, in his right hand, same, same individual, same Jesus here, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We know from Hebrews that that sharp two-edged sword is God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So God brings judgment. Jesus brings judgment based on what God's word has to say. And it's not a, a um, deficient type weapon, right? Like, doesn't sound as cool as, as some of the, the modern weaponry that we have today, but it brings instantaneous victory, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When Jesus shows up and the, the Antichrist and all evil have mounted their forces against him, it brings instantaneous victory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of of his coming, right? It's just an instantaneous victory. There, there's, no, there's no details about a war and a battle that takes place here as though it, it takes much time at all, right? There's no, there's no details about how this plays out because it's so quick, right? It's so instantaneous that Jesus shows up and begins to speak and the destruction of the two beasts and the Antichrist and Satan all come to fruition with the appearing of Jesus. He's coming as an outworking of God's word. The word of God brings judgment and then number four, he is coming to establish his eternal reign. He's described as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. That absolute sovereignty. He's bringing the armies of heaven with him. So heaven is open for John and he sees the white horse and the one who's sitting on it is faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's got infinite knowledge with the flames of fire as eyes. He's got ultimate sovereignty with his many diadems. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. He's bringing the armies of heaven with him, and we know that that, that army is made up of both angels and saints. There's passages that give us insight into what this looks like, and we know that it's got angels making up this army, and the saints of God making up this army. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. 
just so we can build an, an accurate picture of what is it we're even envisioning here. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Angels will come with Jesus when that day dawns and, and he makes his appearance. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that... Um, that when he comes, he grants relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. But we also know that saints are coming with Jesus on that day as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. When he comes, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I think particularly in this passage, what's being emphasized is the saints of God that come with him, right? It's the saints of God that are riding on these horses because they are described as being clothed in fine linen. The same description that is given about the saints of God earlier in this passage. It's the ones that are called and chosen and faithful from Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. And the picture here is that, that those who come with Jesus are riding with him into that victory. They're riding on the same type of white horses as Jesus shows up. So we rejoice over this. We rejoice that that we're waiting for a king who comes. He's a faithful king. He's a true king. He says things that we can believe. He does things that we can count on, things that he's already promised to do, right? He comes in a way that, that shows his divine sovereignty, his ultimate sovereignty, his unhindered sovereignty that he controls everything. He comes on the basis of God's word. So he's coming with the authority of the heavenly father. He's coming to establish his eternal reign. So we rejoice over that. And then we also anticipate the fact that when he comes, he's coming in vengeance and wrath for his enemies. We've talked about this theme throughout Revelation. For our kids, non-Christians have much to fear about Jesus coming back. And we certainly see that in this chapter. That there's much to fear about Jesus coming back if you're, if you're not aligned with his purposes. Number one, because he is coming, we must repent and follow him now. We must repent and follow him now. As I was reading and studying this, it, it reminded me that, that, that God's people are described as people who follow the lamb wherever he goes, right? They follow him wherever he goes, and they're certainly following him here in this chapter they're, they're, they're mounted on these white horses. They're following Jesus into this judgment. And really the best way to prepare for this type of day, and this is a historical day, right? This is a visible bodily return of Jesus to this earth. He promised it to, to his disciples through the angel in Acts chapter 1. The best way to prepare for this day is to repent and to be pursuing good. Revelation chapter 2 verse 16 says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he's talking to the church at Pergamum, and he's, he's, he, Jesus is saying, look, you've got to repent now because if you don't, I'm coming with the sword of my mouth, the same sword that's being described here in Revelation chapter 19. Repent now, pursue good now, be on the right side now for when Jesus shows up in light of that coming king. In 1 Timothy chapter Six, we're told the type of things to pursue, the type of things to avoid in anticipation of this day. 
says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Right? There's, there's certain things that we pursue. There's certain things that we flee from in order to anticipate and prepare for this coming day. Because no one's going to be able to escape it. What we have described here in Revelation is that everybody that's against God has mounted their efforts against him. It's the same description of what's used in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And there's no discrimination here, right? Like everybody's here. The whole world of unbelief is gathered against the white rider. Look at the terms that are used in Revelation 19 to describe this group of people. It says the, the kings, the captains, the mighty men, free and slave, small and great. Some of the same words used for those that can be saved too, right? The small ones, the great ones, that all can be saved, but also all can be judged as well. I think there's a, an appropriate cockiness in how this is presented, like a, like a guarantee and assurance of victory, because before, before this even takes place, it says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for this great supper. It hasn't even happened yet, but the preparations have been made, right? Like for those that have ever had to plan events, like, like it's, it's such a, a, a tedious task to try to figure out how many people are coming to make sure that you have enough food, right? You don't want to over-invite guests and then not have enough food when they show up. You also don't want to have more food than you have guests because then you've wasted a lot of food, right? And so the key when you plan an event is trying to figure out how many people are coming and how much food do I need to have. And the, the announcement here is every bird needs to show up for this, right? There's going to be plenty of food to be had. Every bird needs to show up for this. I mean, this is complete and utter judgment on anyone who is not aligned with Jesus. And, and, and there's an assured victory here, like there will be food when you show up, right? Like there's no doubt as to who's going to win this battle, no doubt as to who's going to win this war. The angel very confidently says, come and gather for this great supper, certain victory, as the birds are told to gather early for the supper. Number two, Because he is coming, we can wait upon him to bring vengeance. We can wait upon him to bring vengeance. He's coming to judge those who oppose him. 
which means we don't have to seek vengeance now ourselves. Revelation 13, 16 causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Right? These are the type of people that take the mark of the beast, the type of people who fall prey to the deception of the false prophet. And it's described, they're described in the same way they're described in Revelation 19 when God's judgment comes upon them. Right? Small and free, or uh, small and great, the, the free and the slave. And God's judgment comes upon them for opposing him. In fact, his garment is already sprinkled with blood, which is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 63. If you want to look at it on your own time, Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6 describes the, the, the garments of God being sprinkled with the blood of his enemies. Again, that Old Testament language being carried over into the New Testament. I've said it a couple of times this morning already that God doesn't discriminate in his judgment just like he doesn't discriminate in his salvation. Right? Acts chapter 10, verse 34 is a passage that points to that truth. Which means that anybody who may be sitting here today who is currently still under God's judgment, hasn't experienced salvation, can be saved today. It says in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Man, the, 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 the offer for salvation is extended to all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, no partiality. But there will be complete victory as the birds are filled up, according to this passage. They're told to come, they're told to come and eat, they're told that there will be enough to eat. It's the same language that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This day is, is, a, is a sad day for those who follow the beast and not the lamb, for they reach their destruction. But for us as Christians, our hope fully lies in Jesus coming to vindicate his saints and to eradicate his enemies. That, that we don't have to seek vengeance. And so that's where this, the, the hope of this passage, like it's, it's a dark and, and, and sad passage for unbelievers, but there's much hope that is extended to believers because of how Jesus interacts on this day. That we don't have to seek vengeance today because vengeance is coming. Listen to what this, this guy from Croatia said in the midst of his country being ravished by Ser, uh, Serbian aggressors. And I don't even know how to say his name here at the bottom here, but he says, only the biblical confidence that God will bring the unjust to justice at history's end can enable victims to respond to their attackers with nonviolent grace in the present. He says, the only way that this makes sense for us not to respond to our enemies right now, I mean, this is the only way it would make sense if we ever find ourselves at a time where we are being persecuted for our faith where our spouses are taken from us, where our kids could be taken from us because of our stance to believe in Jesus. And they're potentially put to death in front of us. The only way that we don't respond in a, in a, in a violent way, the only way that we don't come out in a violent way is to believe that God is going to handle that at some point in history for us, right? The only way that we can have biblical confidence that God will bring the, the only way that, the only way that we can, that, that we can not respond in a violent way is to believe that God is going to do something at history's end. 
He goes on to say, I can renounce violence in the middle of history if I am confident of God's just judgment at the end of history. In his writings, he goes on to even say that God is not asking us not to retaliate because he's a God of love, right? Like we don't, we don't, we're not called to love our enemies and to serve our enemies because God is a God of love. He is a God of vengeance, but he is a God of perfect vengeance. And so therefore he calls us to love and serve our enemies, allowing him then to bring appropriate vengeance at the appropriate time. As you were discussing this in your groups this morning, you may have looked up Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome be, no, not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, the encouragement to us here is that every influence of Satan goes with him to hell and never again appears anywhere outside of hell. And all this stuff has an eternal destination, and it is being moved there. Every form of persecution, every form of deception, every enemy of God ends up in hell for eternity, never again to appear anywhere outside of hell. Because Jesus is coming, we have a responsibility to repent now, to follow him now, and to wait upon him to bring vengeance for us. We don't interact with our enemies in the way that our flesh would tell us to, right? We interact far differently. We pray for our enemies. We serve our enemies. We love our enemies. I want to give you a couple of, or three points of application for us this morning. Three points of application. Number one, out of this text, I think it's very clear that we have a responsibility to keep believing that the coming day of judgment is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus is true. I say, what do you mean by that? Well, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So we've said that in anticipation of this day that's coming, we repent now. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's a historical day coming where Jesus returns and he judges it in righteousness. He's fixed this day by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We talked a couple of weeks ago, and I spoke very poignantly to our, to our students, that there's going to come a day where you may be tempted to walk away from the faith right? Like you may be tempted to abandon the faith. And there's all kinds of reasons that people do that, but they could probably be all grouped under one of three things. And they all involve disappointment, right? People walk away from the faith because they are either disappointed in how God has acted for them, right? Like they're, like they're, they're discontent with how God played out circumstances in their life, right? Like whatever that may look like, you could group a lot of things underneath that, right? God, God took a loved one way too early, right? Whether that's somebody who's older than you that you were really close to that was a spiritual figure or, or this really important family figure or somebody that was younger than you, right? Like a child. 
You get discontent with how God has chosen to carry out your circumstances. You're disappointed in God, and so you walk away from the faith, right? Other times, people walk away because they are disappointed in other Christians, right? Like other Christians have failed them. They've, they've claimed to be Christians. They've claimed to, to follow Christ. They've been a part of the church, and they have, they have drastically let the person down. Um, a, a novel that I was reading with our eighth graders, the, the character in that book is very resistant to becoming a Christian because he grew up in church, and all of his experience and his words, all of his experience with Christians, they're, they're hypocrites, that they say one thing and they do the other, right? Far different from the Jesus that we're waiting upon, right? The faithful, the true, the one who says things and does things, the one that you can believe what he says. But a lot of times people walk away from the faith because they are disappointed in other Christians, and the third thing that I think would help us encompass every reason for people walking away from, from Christianity is that they're disappointed in the Christian life, right? That at some point they wake up and decide, you know what, like this just isn't paying off for me, right? Like I want to go back to my old way of living or I want to go and do some of the things that I'm told to flee from or I'm tired of doing some of the things that I'm told to pursue, so either way, people leave the faith because they're disappointed in God, they're disappointed in other Christians, or they're disappointed in the Christian life and the expectations of the Christian life. And so they wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to leave Christianity, I'm going to do something different, because God let me down, Christians let me down, or what I thought I was going to get out of this has been unfulfilling. But I challenged you a few weeks ago, man, the only thing that makes sense to walk away from the faith is if you believe something drastically different now about the resurrection of Jesus. Because Paul says our whole faith hinges on the resurrection. Like if the resurrection is not true, then we should all do something totally different with the rest of our lives. But if it is true, man, it has, it has drastic meaning for us as believers. Right? So the only way that you could really ever make sense to me and say, you know what, Adam, I'm not a Christian anymore. Like I, I just don't, I don't follow Jesus anymore. And I would expect that you're going to say, God disappointed me, Christians disappointed me, or the Christian life disappointed me. But the only thing that would make sense is for you to say, man, I just did an extensive study on the proofs of the resurrection and found them wanting. Like, like I, I really think his body is in the, in, is in the ground somewhere. Like, I, like, I'm fully confident that people were lying about those resurrection accounts. Like, I've never met anybody who walked away from Jesus because they came up with a new solution for the resurrection. And, and what, what, what's being said here in Acts chapter 17 is, is that if the resurrection remains true, the return of Jesus remains true as well. So for you to walk away from Jesus, you're, you're really having to say, I don't believe he's coming back anymore because I don't believe he ever rose from the dead. Man, I don't, I don't want to make the mistake of being disappointed in God and walking away from the faith and him still being resurrected because it means he's still coming back again. And that means may mean I'm under his judgment. Man, my, my loyalty to God needs to not be based on him playing out circumstances in such a way that makes sense to me. My loyalty to God should not be based on other Christians living up to the standard that I've set for them, the expectations that I have for them. Because let me tell you, you're gonna always be disappointed in other Christians. And if we're talking about being disappointed in God because of circumstances not going the way that you want them to, you're always going to be disappointed in God not working out circumstances the way you want them to. You're just always going to be disappointed in that. And thankfully, it's usually a good disappointment because he's usually doing it better than you could have ever imagined.
But you're always going to be disappointed in those things if your faith is wrapped up in God meeting certain expectations or other people meeting certain expectations. Man, our faith is grounded on the fact that Jesus came back from the dead. And God says, because I brought him back from the dead, you can count on the fact that I'm sending him back to judge this earth. The coming day of judgment is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus is true. So to ever ever rightfully walk away from the faith, you have to really evaluate the evidence of the resurrection and say, I don't believe he rose. Therefore, I don't believe he's coming back to judge me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to now. I mean, it's the only way that makes sense to walk away from the faith. It's the, only make, it's the only way it makes sense to walk away from the faith. Otherwise, you push through the disappointments and you say, you know what? Man, I wish God had done this differently. This is hard the way that he's doing it. But man, I trust him. This is, this is the best thing somehow, some way. You push through the disappointment of people letting you down. People in this church are going to let you down. Like as your, as your leadership, we are going to let you down. I mean, you push through that and you say, you know what? I'm not a believer because I believe that Adam and Tyson and, and Adam and, and others are, are going to live up to my expectations for them. I'm a believer in Jesus because I think he came back from the dead. Therefore, I think he's coming back one day to judge. You push through the disappointments because you believe Jesus has risen from the dead. And we have to teach that to our kids. We have to teach that to our kids that, that we follow Jesus because we believe he's alive and we believe he's coming again. Keep believing this coming day is coming as much as we believe Jesus is back from the dead. Number two, keep obeying. Those who ride with Jesus are engaging in the same battle and pursuing the same goal. These riders on these white horses with Jesus, the picture here is that they are unified in the same purposes that Jesus has. Which means I think it gives us pause to say, is there any area of my life where I'm not riding with Jesus right now? Right? Is there any area of life where I can't say that, that I am following Jesus intensely the way that he wants me to? Or am I, am I riding with Jesus sometimes over here and then other, other times I'm, I'm going off on my own way? I'm choosing to do things my own way. The followers of Jesus in this passage, man, they are riding on white horses, horses of purity, and they are pursuing the same goal as Jesus. Keep obeying Ride with Jesus, follow the lamb wherever he goes, wherever he tells you to go. Number three, keep loving. Keep loving. When you can't fight back, don't despair. And when you can fight back, don't. Right? There's sometimes where we don't seek vengeance on others because we're just not capable of it. Man, we'd love to. We'd love to fight back. We'd love to go seek vengeance on somebody. We're just not capable of doing it. There's other times where we can in both incidences, don't, be, don't despair because you can't pursue vengeance. And those times when you can, don't seek vengeance. Keep loving our enemies because Jesus is coming back. And if we fail to, to love them to Jesus, Jesus will deal with them in a rightful way, in a righteous way. So in the end, we can trust that our enemies get dealt with appropriately. Either our enemies and their offenses against us get dealt with on the cross and they come to Jesus because we love them and we heap coals of fire on their head, which is a picture of repentance, right? Either God deals with them that way or God deals with them the other way and they become the supper of the birds. Either way, we take comfort that God does it the right way. God brings vengeance appropriately. Our family worship questions. 
What are some ways we show that we are pursuing the same goals for this world that Jesus has for it? How do we show that we're riding with Jesus, just like these white riders ride with Jesus in this passage? What are some ways that we're intentionally trying to do that in our life, pursuing the same goals that God has? Number two, what are the correct responses we should have when we are tempted to seek vengeance against those who have harmed us? This is a great way to remind our kids or to teach our kids for the very first time. What is the correct way for us to respond to our enemies in light of what Jesus plans to do to them on this historical day when he returns? He rose from the dead on a specific day. He will return on a specific day. It's our responsibility to be ready for that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the fact that you are faithful and true, that we can believe the things that you say that we can expect you to do certain things because you've obligated yourself to do them. God, I pray that you would help us to, to fight through the disappointments of life and to keep on believing, not based on our emotions and our feelings, but because Jesus is back from the dead. God, I pray that we'd be able to, to push through times where we are disappointed in our circumstances, believing that you have better things in store for us. Help us to push through disappointments that we have with other believers when they don't act the way that we want them to act. God, help us to realize that our faith is in Jesus, who's the faithful and true, not other Christians. Other Christians aren't always faithful. They're not always true. Help us to push through disappointments when we experience hurt from others in this church. God, help our faith not to be tied to that. Help us to anchor ourselves to the fact that we believe that Jesus is back from the dead. God, I pray that that would continue to remind us that Jesus is coming back one day. And that we need to align ourselves with your purposes because of that. Give us encouragement to do that even this week, Father. That we would seek ways to be obedient to you. That we would picture ourselves being clothed in fine linen. As we seek to perform good that ultimately results in your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.